help my city and my neighbors who are suffering from injustice? Do I have implicit or explicit prejudice in my own life? Does the change I want to see in the world need to start with me? These are the uncomfortable questions that we are confronted with on an almost daily basis. And thankfully, they are the questions that Amos addresses and demands we ask ourselves. Just like Israel, we can often think that because of our relationship with God, there is no reason for us to personally examine how, how we are participating in injustice and oppression. We can think that our covenantal identity as God's people is simply enough. And though we serve a faithful God abounding in steadfast love, Amos is here to remind us that the covenant that we have made with God gives us our identity and vocation, but never an excuse to oppress. Israel was breaking relationship with God through their systemic practices of oppression. And when God sees his image bearers being violated, he cannot stand aside. He is a God who intervenes and liberates and the Israelites know this better than anybody else. Because of their history, God had taken them out of the land of Egypt. He had taken them through the Red Sea and into the promised land. But just like any earthly empire, when power and money came along, they could not resist. So let's look through the book of Amos together to see how the prophet takes the lands to task for how they have been in injustice, and talk about how we can learn from Amos as we walk with Christ today. So the first question we need to answer is, where does Amos fit in the grand scheme of the minor prophets? Well, Amos, like all the prophets, the ones that we have talked about and the ones we will continue to talk about, is a messenger sent by God to call the people back to covenant or relational faithfulness. Amos is advocating on behalf of the covenant God established with the Israelites' people. And the Israelites are consistently breaking this covenant through their sin, their rebellion, and their unjust treatment of one another. And this results in a broken relationship between themselves and the God they claim to love. And this advocation is recorded in the book of Amos. Now, any guesses on to who wrote the book? Oh, indeed, Caleb, indeed. I thought that would really be a curveball, but I see the caffeine is working through your systems this morning. You're awake. I love it. I love it. Now, Amos in the Hebrew literally means burden bearer, and a burden Amos did indeed bear. As we look through the first couple chapters of the book, he is bringing the heat, and he's bringing it quickly. He's calling out all of Israel's neighbors about what they had been doing wrong in the sight of God Every single nation near Israel had been doing terrible, terrible things, and God was not having it. They were oppressing people, and God would not stand by and let it happen. But as we go through the chapters, Amos also calls out the kingdoms where God's covenant people reside, and these are the kingdoms of Israel and Judah. The nation of Israel used to be one nation, actually, and that's when it was ruled by Saul, David, Solomon, you know, all the big names that we hear about in Sunday school. But then, because of some drama, uh, the nation split uh, into the nation of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. Now, there was, a, like I said, there was a lot of drama leading up to this, but the, it, basically all you need to know is that they had split up, and they were never, ever, ever getting back together. <laughs> 
And then Amos, to this divided land, brings a warning to Israel about their systemic oppression by those in power and how God would not let it stand. The Lord asks Israel to right their wrongs just as much as the neighboring nations. It echoes the words of Jesus at the Sermon on the Mount when he says in Matthew, Why do you seek the speck in your neighbor's eye but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your neighbor, let me take the speck out of your eye while the log is in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye. Justice and righteousness is the key theme for the book of Amos. It is mentioned three times at three key is calling all to stop the injustice and right their wrongs. But Israel, as we mentioned before, had become an oppressive nation. The wealthy were using and abusing the poor. And, th uh, and through that abuse, they were growing in wealth and power and stature. Specifically, the rich and powerful in Israel were rejecting God's laws, and the priests were refusing to teach that God was indeed a God of justice and righteousness. This meant that Israel was serving and worshiping other gods, cheating on their covenantal partner, just like Justin talked about in Hosea a few weeks ago. Furthermore, the powerful abused the needy and the humble in their cities, many of whom were farmers who lived on the land that the rich owned in Israel. They were self-indulgent, only worrying about their bottom line rather than their fellow human beings. They pursued violence against fellow Israelites and their neighbors. They were committing sexual offenses and hated those who were honest and tried to live in a way that honored and pleased God and was loving to their neighbor. This God could not abide. Their participation in these oppressive practices were breaking the covenant that Israel and God had agreed upon. These acts of injustice were showing the nations, uh, were not showing the nations what Yahweh was like, and it was abusing people made in God's image, people bearing his likeness. So Amos is sent to speak about the fallout from that injustice and the refusal to turn from their wicked ways. Cassie last week spoke a bit about how individual actions have consequences. She spoke about how God has called us, his people, to change our hearts, not just our clothing. To be people who go through both outward and inward change. But Israel however, thought that changing their clothes was enough, and Amos speaks against it. In chapter five, 5, verses 21 through 24, he speaks about this only outward mentality when he writes, I hate, I despise your feasts. I cannot stand the stench of your solemn assemblies. Even if you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. I will have no regard for your fellowship offerings of fattened cattle. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice flow like water and righteousness like an unfailing stream. 
Israel thought that it could please God by just going through the religious motions. It thought that if they continued to sing, continued to make sacrifices, that God would simply be pleased and that the covenant relationship would be satisfied. But God saw the heart of the people and their heart was one of stone. They were not loving their neighbors as themselves and therefore they were not loving God with all of their being. Israel sounds, honestly, a lot like the mean, nasty church people that many of us have had the displeasure of encountering in our lives. You know the ones that I'm talking about. I'm not going to name names, but hopefully they're not in here, to be honest. (laughs) But these are the people who would, you know, when you enter the congregation, would never hesitate to give you, you know, the icy glares, to comment about how, you know, we don't know how to dress respectfully and how we're always on our phones. And those comments, those glares, they cause hurt. They cause an environment that we do not feel welcome as the people of God. And when a condescending congregation is combined with narcissistic pastors and charismatic but nonetheless corrupt leaders in charge of the people of God, scars and trauma come from the mistreatment and abuse. Those are the feasts that God despises today. Those are the praises he will not accept. Church bodies that harbor an attitude that is anti-neighbor, anti-fruit of the spirit, and anti-Jesus. That is the place where Amos' message lands hardest today. Their religious services will not save them from God bringing their wrongs into the light. God, through Amos, was bringing the wrongs of Israel into the light God was saying that their status as a covenant people would not shield them from the consequences of their wrongdoing. It echoes Paul's words again to the church in Rome where he writes, What should we say then? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. Our status as the people of God does not exclude us from realizing that we are in the wrong And it does not prevent us from working to right our injustices and the injustices in our world and in our society. And like in Amos' time, there are many ills in our society at multiple levels. When we wrong people, it produces hurt and brokenness. It is as the saying goes, hurt people, hurt people. There's an old viral video that I remember that kind of personifies this effect wrongdoing can have on a person. The video is of a man discussing how a neighbor came into his house and started stealing just the most random of things. Uh, This is a direct quote from the interview when the news got there. The guy says this, who steals a cheese grater? He got the works, Lysol. He stole an empty bottle of spray. What got me most was my soap. He stole my soap. Who steals soap? Now, you know, and honestly, I don't know what that man was going to do with an empty bottle of Lysol. I cannot answer that question here this morning. It will have to go unanswered until a later time. But I do find it sad that in this neighborhood, it seems that this neighbor thought stealing these items from the man when he wasn't home was easier than coming to his door and asking for them. Do I, again, do I know what this guy was going to do with an empty bottle of Lysol? Absolutely not. But the idea that this neighbor felt hurting his fellow man through theft and breaking their relationship 
was easier, easier than simply asking for them shows a harsh reality of our individualistic culture. What if he would have gone to that neighbor's house? What if they had spoken before, gotten to know each other's vocations, their interests? What if they had shared a drink or a meal in their homes? It seems like a love of neighbor would have prevented this wound from ever being made. We have witnessed the fallout from wrongdoing, both on a personal and a national level. We've seen institutions continually fail at their commitments to people. Whether it is multi-million dollar settlements where companies do not have to admit guilt or wrongdoing in a court case, or churches and ministries hiding sexual abuse, or covering up theft, or platforming the narcissistic pastor just so they can save face or preserve a brand. We have every reason to look at these instances and cry, where is the justice? Why does it not flow like a mighty stream? It's hard, to, it's hard and it is easy to feel powerless while others get away with injustice. Especially when we see the ripples of said injustice in our city, our workplaces, and even our own church community. But before we start embodying Jesus by flipping any tables, <laughs> we need to remember how the prophets themselves conducted their ministries, and how Jesus, the ultimate prophet, conducted himself in the presence of the powerful and the oppressive. The prophets never separated themselves from the people of Israel. When they read their oracles and letters, when they gave these messages, when we look at their books, there is a constant theme. When they spoke, they never said, Lord, have mercy upon my sinful countrymen. They said, Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have sinned against you. Even though they were messengers from God to his speak people, they were the ones speaking out against the evil. They understood that they themselves were not blameless. They had participated in these systems of oppression in one way or another, whether actively or passively. They never saw themselves as above those God sent them to speak to. Rather, they identified with them. Encouraging the people, not through their superiority or their power, but by their lived example. Their lives were a message to the people around them to turn away from their oppressive systems to in return to a loving God. They led through their embodiment not through political or social power. And praise God, it reminds us of someone else we know who took on flesh so that humanity might have a savior who literally knew what it was like to walk in our shoes. That's Jesus himself. Jesus, he breathed air. His feet got sore. He rested and slept in boats and in the wilderness. He felt hungry. He felt thirsty. He felt anxiety. He knew what it was like to be us. And he was also an Israelite. And the Israelites in Jesus' time were being oppressed by, lo and behold, the Roman Empire. Christ knew what it was like to look upon a city and see signs of an oppressive conqueror. Herod even tried to have Jesus killed when he was a baby because he felt like Jesus was a threat to his political power. 
Another member of Herod's house executed Jesus' cousin, John the Baptist, for speaking prophetically against his sexual misconduct. Christ knew what it was like to be a part of the oppressed minority. And yet, how does he pray? Forgive us our debts. Even when Jesus lived a sinless life, never once stumbling, what does he teach us? Love your enemies and pray for them. Even when he knows that his enemies will eventually kill him, he prays. And he dies to show us how love, uh, our love for enemies is an invitation into his kingdom work. His death is not a gotcha moment. It is instead a dramatic display of love for all people, even those who had literally just nailed him to the cross. The essence of the ministry of the prophets and Christ are that they were with the people. They were with the people who were suffering, and they were with the people who were causing the suffering, and their message was always the same, seek God and live. But to disrupt their abusive practices, there had to be change. For the prophets, it was exile. It was not only the consequences of their, uh, of their injustice that the people of Israel went into exile, but it was also the only way to disrupt and end their oppressive systems that were in place. For Jesus, it was flipped tables. It was mighty miracles and eventually an empty tomb. He did things that disrupted the system of oppression to give people freedom and the ability to follow God. And he did it ultimately by dying for the very people who would consider themselves his enemies. And that is the prophetic role. That is how we can truly speak truth to power in the midst of the 21st century. We recognize that our role is threefold. We call out the crap. We also recognize that we have crap to deal with ourselves, and we know that the amount of crap that someone throws will never change the fact that they are made in the image of God just like us, and that Christ died to save them. And the role of the prophet, praise God, is something we are all invited into, not just if we're going to make funny YouTube videos, but here now in our day-to-day as the people of God, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling within us. We believe not only in the priesthood of all believers, but the prophethood of all believers. And that is because the same Spirit that gave the prophets the imagination and the courage to speak against the injustice committed by those in power now calls our hearts His home, His dwelling place. I believe it is one reason why activism and protest has been something that is cared deeply about in this generation. So, my fellow prophets, how do we do that? What does this look like in our day-to-day lives? To do it, we have three prophetic practices. We need to grieve and lament, take some personal inventory of our lives, and be energized by the people of God and the Holy Spirit for good and prophetic kingdom work. Firstly, let's start with grief and lament. When we look at the life of Jesus, we find a particular time where he expressed lament at the state of the world and at the state of God's people. 
And it was while he was looking over the city of Jerusalem. Luke records it in chapter 19 like this. And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that would make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem, the kingdom of Israel, it was supposed to be a beacon to the world of God's love. But they had fallen away. They had continually chosen power. And they did, not, they did not even recognize Jesus. God made flesh in their midst. This could not have been an easy thing for Jesus to bear. But he showed us in that moment, he showed his followers that weeping and lamenting is indeed a holy thing. The expression of pain and grief is something that our culture likes to hide. People are often not comfortable with so-called negative emotions, things like pain, sadness, and grief, because it reminds us that the world is not as it should be. And though the world is getting better about having honest conversations about processing hard emotions, I do think there is still a bias towards ignoring pain rather than dealing with it. We would rather bury our personal pain and ignore the pain that we see in others in the world so we can keep going like everything is just fine and dandy. That is the attitude that the prophets speak against. The prophet's job is to remind the people of God that things are not as they should be. The Lord is coming, but he is not yet back and the powers and principalities of the world are not going to relent in their spreading of suffering. There will be pain, there will be anguish, and there will be injustice as people try to hold on to control and power in broken systems. And that is why the people of God lament. We lament over the shedding of innocent blood. We lament over broken systems and filibusters in Congress that prevent justice from being done. We lament when we are reminded of poverty and homelessness when we see God's image bearers holding signs at intersections and street corners. These are the types of things that bring us to a point of grief, weeping, and lamentation. Because we understand that it was never supposed to be this way. God's plan was for the garden, not the concrete jungle. His plan was for jubilee and debt forgiveness, not for overdue payments and foreclosure. And his plan for, uh, was for us to work with him and walk with him in the cool of the day, not under the knowledge and constant threat that we could lose our lives in an instant due to senseless mass violence. These are what bring us to a point of lament. But it is still something that is hard to practice. So a very practical way to practice lament and one that I found so much depth in in my personal life is found in Romans 8 where Paul writes this. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. So we, for, uh, excuse me, for when we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings 
too deep for words. Uh, a professor and a friend that I had in college told us that he remembered reading this verse at the beginning of a new year, and he committed himself to exercising it. Whenever he saw something that reminded him that God never intended the world to be this way, he simply sighed. When he did not have any words to say or pray, he sighed. And he sighed knowing that the Spirit of God was sighing with him and within him. When you don't have any words and a sigh is all you can muster midtown, know that your sigh is a holy thing. Just as we return the breath that God gave us with praise, we also offer it back to him when we cry, when we sigh, and when we lament for how the world is versus how it should be. The second thing that we can do is take a personal inventory. After we lament, after we grieve, we realize that we do have some work to do. Once we realize the world is not as it should be and the prophets have, has, excuse me, have reminded us of God's original vision, we have to look within ourselves and ask some hard questions and take some personal inventory. We have to ask how we are uh, contributing to the very things the prophets were critiquing. What is our impact on our environment is there prejudice that we hide within us towards our fellow image bearers? Do we look down on those who are not in the same economic place as us? Bob Dylan, he did some personal inventory. The entirety of God on our side is a reflection on how the nation he and we live in has used God as an excuse to do horrific things. We now live and benefit in that nation, and that nation has a lot of blood on its hands. But he ends the song by saying that he is weary as hell. And that is because taking inventory of our own life and the land that we live in is not a comfortable practice. It takes intentional time and effort on our part. But remember this, just as much as when we engage into a relationship with God, he never dumps everything that is wrong in our life on the table and says, better get to work to fixing it. When we accept him as Lord of our lives, there are things that he reveals to us on our journey. And when he reveals things to us, we tackle them with God as a team. He is gracious and he is merciful and he walks with his people even through challenging things like taking personal inventory. But just as we remember the graciousness and the love of our Heavenly Father, we also remember the words of James when he says, faith without works is dead. The work of confronting what we are doing to combat systemic oppression is hard, but the faith that we share compels us to be people of justice, mercy, and humility. As part of that journey, part of being formed in Christ's image as citizens of his kingdom is looking at the log in our own eye before we can start speaking prophetically against the dirt in our neighbors. Now, I do want to address that this personal inventory may lead us to choose from abstaining from things like brands and products that we do not feel right supporting. 
But I want to, I want to say this. This is not just some kind of Christian version of the culture war. Prophetic critique through boycotting or protesting is something that is done because of our love for God and neighbor. Not something that is done out of hatred towards a brand, loyalty to a party, or just to virtue signal. The Spirit of God has long been prompting the people of God to act and consume justly, long before the words culture war were ever muttered by some news executive. So I encourage you, be sensitive to the promptings of the Spirit. When looking to support ethical brands, start with something approachable. For example, coffee and chocolate are two of the largest industries that still use slave labor to produce their products. A quick Google search can tell you where and how to buy things like ethical coffee and chocolate. Start with that. And then listen to the Spirit as he leads you further and deeper in your journey. It is so very difficult in this consumeristic culture to be a people who are ethical, who live rightly and justly. And when we have moments of ignorance, that's why we have God's grace. And it's why we confess together to remind ourselves that even when we stumble, we are a part of the forgiven community. And God's grace is also here to guide us when we have hard questions. Should I feel guilty for living in a nice house? What about a modest apartment? How do I get, navigate feeling challenged versus feeling guilty? My advice this morning is to invite God into those spaces. Remember, he is a gracious God. He does not demand us to confront everything we have done wrong the moment we choose to serve him. But his spirit can sometimes challenge us to do things that are outside of our comfort zone. When we take these hard questions to God and come away feeling content, it's something we can take comfort in. But let our contentment never be an excuse for laziness or ignoring the promptings of the spirit to take personal inventory, even when it is uncomfortable and challenging. Uh, worship team, if you'd like to come on up while we talk about our third point. To do this work, we need energy, and we need hope, more than a cliff bar, amen? This hard work is not one we do alone. The Holy Spirit and the voice of the prophets help energize us, the citizens of God's kingdom, to turn that mindset into a grind set, brother. Amos did not leave his audience without hope and energy for change. Amos 9, 11 through 15 brings about the promise of restoration that is such a central theme in the prophets. The wrongdoing of the people and God's justice would not be the last line in the story. The people will return from exile. They will come back into their homeland and they will rebuild. Amos even mentions that someone from David's line would come again to rule and bring hope. Amos literally ends the book with dropping the message of Jesus, the Messiah, so that the people of Israel can find hope and energization in his declaration. Amos is no stranger to energizing people to enact kingdom-minded social change. Martin Luther King Jr. himself echoed Amos's famous words, let justice flow like a river, and righteousness like a mighty stream when he gave his I have a dream speech in Washington, D.C. 
Amos's words were what King chose to energize the civil rights movement, to continue the marches, to continue the sit-ins, to continue the bus boycotts, so that equality could come to be realized throughout the entirety of the land. King's voice and Amos's words energized many people that day to continue the work of kingdom justice. So Midtown, find voices that will help you feel equipped to do the same kingdom work. Find men and women whose speech energizes you and gives you hope, and I promise they don't all have to be Christian. Some of my personal favorites are, as he's getting a lot of, sh- uh, got a lot of spotlight, Bob Dylan, Rage Against the Machine, Lauren Hill, and Tracy Chapman. Now, are these artists prophets? I don't think they would accept such a title. But do their lyrics speak prophetically? Absolutely. It's a beautiful part about how the Spirit of God, who empowered the prophets and continues to empower his people today, he is always at work calling the people back to good kingdom work. And he does this through creativity and all people, he does this through the creativity that all people have been given as God's image bearers. We are created in the image of the maker of the cosmos. And humanity reflects that creativity when those gifts and creativity are used. So listen to your local artists, to the musicians, and to the craftsmen. Let them speak. Support them in their work. And listen for the prompting of the Spirit. When the people of God are not listening, the Spirit never stops speaking. When he wants to give you hope and energy today, listen for it. I promise you will find it in the voices. All right, folks, it's time to practice. If you feel energized right now, we have three tables at the front here for flipping purposes. Come on down. Only joking. But I do think that there's a bit of truth in that joke. The Lord's Supper itself is one table that empowers us to go forth and flip unjust tables. It's a place where the Spirit of God literally feeds us so we can go out and do His work. That is something that we can reflect on today as we come up and partake in a moment. But I want to finish with this. I know this is a lot of information, everybody, and it's challenging. It's a lot to think about. It's overwhelming, and even with the three steps that we've discussed, it's hard to know where to start. I encourage you, go through these three steps this week even if it takes a few days. Mourn with God at the state of our fallen world. Take some time to listen to God's voice and take inventory of what we are already doing to help and what we can be doing more of. And know that as we engage in this work, that the Spirit of God will continue to energize his people prophetically to do the good work, to be a beacon of hope, and to live as God's people of justice and righteousness. listening to the Midtown Church Weekly Podcast. To find out more or to join a church gathering, check out our website at midtownkc.church.